Michelle. Hi, I'm Caitlin. Welcome to Better Words. Hi, everyone. Hi. Oh, wow. Can you believe it is the middle of December? When does that happen? I know. I know. And it's such a, it's, everybody says it too, don't they? Like, I know. sorry to be where the, where the people who are just adding to the noise of people going, oh my God, where did the year go? Oh, I know. Like, <laughs> oh, can you believe it's the end of the year? Oh, can you believe it's almost Christmas? Oh, can you believe it's the end of a decade? It's like, I'm sick of it, anyway. but I also believe it. <laughs> <laughs> But you know what's funny is it really doesn't feel like it's nearly Christmas for me and maybe that's because I keep thinking like it's winter like maybe that I'm still a bit like like I know Aha, objectively it's I know it's nearly you. Christmas. Yeah like I objectively I know it's nearly Christmas like everything's all Christmassy but still a little bit of me is like oh wow it's only like two weeks. Huh, that went fast like because yeah. I don't know I'm just still part of me is like it's the middle of the year because also I feel like when we moved as well at the end of May it was sort like of a like start. yeah it was a start yeah. of something so it still only feels like that's halfway through and it's like that was all my year was leading up to that and that felt like it was the start of the year for, for us or like because it was the start of something it was yeah. the start of two years so I think sometimes I still have a moment where I'm like, oh, wow, oh, got to get all this organised before Christmas. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it is weird how those things happen. I, mm. myself, am fully aware that it's almost Christmas because I've completely immersed myself in Christmas this December. Yay. I made myself <laughs> a little guideline, little rule to as much as I can, and I've broken this rule, but to read Harry Potter, watch Christmas movies, and listen to Christmas music. <laughs> now, I have also been watching The Crown and Mrs. Maisel, but I don't want to talk about that because I also, over the weekend, watched um, the cheesiest Netflix Christmas sitcom, which was so fun. It was called Merry, Happy, Whatever. Oh, I've seen that. And it was like, yeah, so it's like this like family coming back together for Christmas and it's set over like a couple days before Christmas and then like on it ends at New Year's so it's like the holiday that like the holidays with the family and the dad is Dennis Quaid and it's just hilarious the only reason I want to watch it is because Dennis Quaid is the dad yeah he's such a good dad (laughs) I know yeah so Uh, fun um and I also watched Christmas Inheritance which was better than I thought it was going to be but like still a bad fun movie um and I also watched Let It Snow a week or so ago and that was worse than I thought it was going to be oh really oh okay bit of a shame Mm. I don't know I think I forgot what it was about I don't know it's weird because like you know it's like three storylines and one of them is that there's this like pop star that ends up in this town on Christmas Eve because the train broke down and so he's hanging out with this girl. And it's like, it feels like One Direction fan fiction. <laughs> like, yeah, there's like a, a pop star like hanging out with me in my town. It's like, so weird. Anyway. That is strange. I do want to watch it though. I think, I think. No, it's cute and adorable. Like you'll probably still enjoy it on in the background while you're eating breakfast or whatever, but. It's not like amazing, amazing. <laughs> I'll um I'll save it for when I'm working then, when I'm doing some yeah. admin stuff. Um, while we're talking about Christmas movies, I do have an amazing recommendation for you, and that is Klaus on Netflix. I thought oh, it was wonderful. Yay! No, I haven't watched that one yet. I'll have I to. I mean, I wholeheartedly underestimated it. So good. Perhaps perhaps it was wonderful because. I was like, oh, it's just a Netflix animation. Like, mm, we'll see. Like, you know, don't know what it's going to be like. But it was so beautiful. It was really sweet. It was a bit weird, but it was lovely. That's so nice. Yeah. So I really, I mean, the end, I was like crying at the end. It was really sweet. It was really sweet. And a really good soundtrack, too, of like modern music in an animation. It was very, yeah, it was interesting. Fun. And the only other Christmas film I've watched is Nativity, which um, is a really, really funny 
British, like it's so daggy, like it's very, and I can't translate that for British, but it's like it's got Martin Freeman and like <laughs> really big names at Pam Ferris who plays um, Aunt Marge in Oh yeah Harry Potter Harry and Potter. also Chunchbull in Matilda. Mm-hmm. It's got it's got like big names in it, um, but it's just about this guy who put who wants to put on this nativity play at his local primary school, but he has this like rivalry with the the other primary school for their nativity and he's like yeah yeah well um you know hollywood's coming to ours and then someone overhears it and it all gets out so then they have to do this amazing nativity and the kids are all just like really bad but in the most adorable way like they do their tryouts and stuff and they're all like doing their special talent and one kid's talent is that he can make his face go red from holding his breath and like (laughs) it's just like it's so genuine though like it's so it's Aww. so sweet because it's so unpretentious sounds adorable yeah so i don't know if it's on australian netflix but i've definitely watched it on abc before um when i was in australia so hopefully you get to see it but apparently there's a second one so i'm going to try and watch that but it was yeah jack was like this is so weird i don't get it and i'm like but you watch like superhero movies and stuff and you get that so what don't you get about Hollywood coming to this nativity play like I don't understand how that is that much of a stretch you know I don't know you both you both have weird things about what is a stretch and what isn't in movies and tv shows so let's not delve into that but like if you can (laughs) accept that superheroes exist maybe you can accept that his ex-girlfriend's a Hollywood producer and and he convinces her to come over to see this nativity play. Like it's actually more acceptable, but it's a very cute movie and yeah, just totally unpretentious. And that's what makes, that's the genius of it is that it is so like, it literally is like seems super low budget. And so it's probably, it's probably not, but I mean, when you look at it, it's just, uh, it's mostly just in the, the playing classroom and yeah. It's really cute. Cute. What are you and, reading and you know this what? December? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Can I just add, um, you know what, you'll really enjoy that it's a musical nativity as well. So Amazing. The, at the end when they perform the nativity, it's all original songs like written by the teacher, like he wrote the whole nativity. <laughs> this is the best thing ever. Oh, my God. I know. It's actually That's so, so good. It's so cute. You you actually would really like it's just it's so funny. It's so cute. Yeah, it's very, very cute. Um, yeah. <laughs> what have you been it really does sound up my alley. Um, what have you been reading this December? Well, I didn't want to read any Christmassy books, um, mainly because they're mostly romance and I just was like, and it's not really not really my thing. Um but I did want to read a classic of some sort, and I end up picking up Dracula. Oh, super Christmassy. Makes complete sense. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought too, because I was like, it's wintry, and it's oh, like okay, fair. creepy. Yeah. No, I did. I said I didn't want to read any Christmas books. No, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I know it's not Christmassy. Winter <laughs> makes sense. Yeah, I was trying exactly. to make the connection. Okay. Yeah, so, well, I ended up, I was like, I want a classic because I'll sit at home by the candlelight and read. Um, so it's sort of, I don't know, I just wanted, because I'm such a mood reader, I was like, mm, you know, what would be good now? A classic. Because I've also started watching North and South on Netflix, which is based on um, a classic by Elizabeth Gaskell. So I was like, I'm kind of in the mood for some period sort of classic thing. And then when I saw Dracula, I thought, wintry creepy starts in Transylvania that's cold you know it's sort of it it kind of the vibes of like a a long dark night like it sort of fitted with what I wanted but that reminded me that and we probably talked about it on the podcast we went and saw a really wonderful adaptation of Dracula by Shake and Stir theatre productions yeah yeah that was awesome so yeah, I'm so, sure we did talk about that. It was like yeah, a year and a half ago or something, though. 
it was so brilliant, wasn't it? So it was so good. So I have a thing. I'm so intimidated by classics that I like to watch them first. So like with Pride and Prejudice, obviously we watched that at school and we read the book and now I'm watching North and South. I kind of want to read it as well. And I think it's because it, it can be intimidating otherwise with the, the language use and stuff. So, yeah, it gets like a little bit, as I don't know, as annoying as it is to say, but like I get a bit intimidated because I struggle with the language and you get yeah. hard to understand, which kind of makes me like I feel like after I see the new Little Women movie, I'll really want to reread it because mm. I've read it, but I don't think I liked it. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's very, I don't know. I'm confused, but. I know. Anyway, and the only I'm glad I... you're enjoying your dark Christmas winter read. Well, it is good because, like, the adaptation that we saw was very moody and dark. So mm-hmm. I've got that image in my head of how the adaptation sort of ran. And it was it was so dark and chilling. So I'm enjoying that. It actually is quite well I don't mean that. Well, it's actually quite well written I mean that's why it's a classic <laughs> um what I mean is that it's a lot less readable intimidating to read yeah it's so yeah. much so it's written as like diary entries which I'm pretty sure they read out as the narration of oh. some of the I do you remember like they they would have like voiceovers oh, for yeah, they did. the did. yeah so oh, that's because it's wow. written in there so I find that even though the chapters are long, I might just be like, okay, I'll just I'll read to like the end of this diary entry, and then some of them are letters or telegrams. So that's quite good. Um, but then oh, cool. just the language use isn't isn't too intimidating. Um, but the thing is quite fun that like when when you first introduced to Count Dracula, and you know there's all these things like he's so pale and his teeth look quite long and you know, oh, there are no mirrors around here. And I'm just like, oh, my God, classic vampire trope. And then I'm like, wait, this guy invented that shit. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> oh, and he shimmers in the sunlight. And you're like, oh. <laughs> no, it's not that. That was, no. But, like, yeah, for most of the things where he's like, that up. there's a whole thing where he's like, oh, I was shaving and, and suddenly the count was behind me and he, there was no reflection of him at all. And I was like, oh, my God, obviously he's a vampire. But then, like, <laughs> I have to keep stopping myself and being like, wait, imagine how creepy this would have been to read back in the day when vampire, like, legends weren't really that widely known. Like, we know this because of pop fiction or, like, popular culture. Yeah. So, for like, I have to keep thinking – for, for when it was written, that would have been so creepy and it would have been so atmospheric and creepy. And, yeah. of course, it would have been people have been like, oh, my gosh, like it wouldn't have been, oh, obviously he's a vampire because this is the fir- one of the first instances that all this appeared in literature. So it's actually it's really cool to then stop and think, wow, like the reason that we have Twilight, I mean, it's fallen a far away from the tree, but you know, like the reason we have that, those legends yeah. is because of Dracula. Of Dracula. So, yeah. yeah. So that's quite no. cool. And I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely enjoying it. So good. Yay. I'm a win gen- for the classics. <laughs> yes. I'm genuinely enjoying my current read too, but that's because I'm rereading Harry Potter in December. So <laughs> I'm halfway through Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, the first two are just so so adorable I feel like Prisoner, right. Prisoner of Azkaban gets darker almost immediately mm. like compared to the first two but yeah. I also think my perception of that is a little bit skewed because of the movies but it doesn't matter yes um but yeah it's so nice to reread them I hadn't read them for a couple of years and I had because I've been able to get so much more reading done with my brand new commute um I like read past my like Goodreads 40 books for this year challenge and I was like yeah. hmm I have extra I can reread <laughs> things yeah like you don't feel guilty rereading stuff because you've had time to read the stuff that like we exactly. need to read for the podcast and everything yeah that I beat sense. my goal we're good <laughs> I have Christmas cheer in Harry Potter reread oh that's really sweet well yeah. with all of this December fun um let's get along with this a wonderful little inside peek of an interview yeah this was really fun it's our first 
insider publishing thing. It was really great. Yeah, it is actually. Um, I do just want to make a quick little note um, for our listeners that unfortunately I have no idea what happened. We couldn't really solve this problem while we were recording, but there is like a few spots where there's like weird squeaking in the background, which like I think is just a tech problem that we can't avoid when I don't know how to solve that and all three of us are on the phone in different <laughs> in different places. Different locations. Um, yeah, so that's unfortunately one of just the little tech issues that we have in this upcoming episode. So please bear with us through those moments. Um, because it doesn't really take away chat. from doesn't take away from the recording. No. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Our guest this week has worked in children's publishing for over 20 years. 17 of those were spent in a variety of different roles at David Fickling Books in Oxford. She's previously acquired and edited titles including The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas by John Boyne, Before I Die by Jenny Downham and The Art of Being Normal by Lisa Williamson. She's also edited for many children's publishers including Puffin, Chicken House and Oxford University Press. We're very pleased to welcome you, Bella Pearson, to Better Words. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming. <laughs> Would love to just jump straight in to talking about your impressive career. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit about your career path so far and how Guppy Books came to be? Yes, well, um, I have worked in publishing, as you said, for over 20 years, but I didn't originally set out to do that. When I was about 12, I remember saying to my dad that I wanted to be a publisher because I thought that meant you could read all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Common misconception. (laughs) Exactly. Unfortunately, it isn't that. Um, And then I carried, um, I went on and I actually did a music degree and I went in a slightly different direction. But at that point, I was also working in a children's bookshop during my summers and I rediscovered my love of children's books at that time and then I went and did an MA in children's literature uh, and I did my dissertation on Philip Pullman it was just before the third book had come out um, of the trilogy of the Northern Knights trilogy and he was lovely and I met him and then I coincidentally met David Fickling so that connection between David and Philip meant that I um, met David and got chatting to him and got to know him so when he set up his list um, of children's books in Oxford, uh, which was an imprint of Random House, um, he asked if I would join him and set it up along, you know, be his assistant. So I moved to Oxford um, and started work for him as um, his assistant and then left uh, two years ago as publishing director, having spent nearly 17 years with him in various different guises. So um, so after I left, I, the reason I left is partly because I really wanted to set up my own list. Um, and uh, an investment opportunity came up uh, last summer and so Guppy Books uh, became a reality and I started talking to people about the possibility of setting up a little independent publisher and uh, the enthusiasm was there and the encouragement was there before I knew it I was almost off you know without saying I was going to do it so here I am a year later with two books published and um, this lovely little list forming um, almost you know without any kind of decision behind it but just encouragement and enthusiasm so that's the best place to start absolutely it really was it was it, it felt a little um a bit like I was building a car and it had already driven off and I hadn't put the wheels on but it, it's been a <laughs> that is amazing why why after so many years at at DFB, did you want to branch out and and do your own thing? What what was it that you were looking for? I think I wanted to curate exactly. <laughs> Maybe I'm a bit of a control freak, but I wanted to create my own list of exactly what I put together, and I wanted to, to produce a variety of books that would something that would appeal to everybody that uh, I had chosen and I the ones I wanted to work on. So. Yes, maybe it is a, a control thing, but I um I really, really I love the books at David Books. But what I really wanted to do was exactly that, produce a variety of books that um would something that would appeal to everybody and that the books that I absolutely loved. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the next step of, of being in publishing, isn't it, is, is literally having full control over what stories you put out there and and proudly being able to say that you, you know, you have published those books and you, you found them and you, you know, invested in them in time and effort and all that sort of stuff and to be able to to say it's proudly your your publishing you're That's publishing right. it yeah. and also to publish those books that people wouldn't necessarily think of as as um you know being the immediate one to publish so I think that's I can often see things in something very early on or perhaps um something that other people have said no to that then goes on to be um sort of quite well known or or a success and I know it's a great story but perhaps the market may not be right at the time but I can see that it will work whether the market is right or not and I think that um that's what I really wanted to do I want to do is to bring books in that don't necessarily seem on the surface like the book kind of books that um, a mainstream publisher would want to take on but that have a, a right there and also have a, a readership somewhere so. I think that's wonderful that's what we need more of in publishing absolutely because you never know what the next big thing is until it arrives and I think that's where so many people can be misled in a way they, they go for what oh everyone wants vampire books everyone wants um, some type of book what's the next Harry Potter but of course Harry Potter wasn't the next anything else it was just itself mm, absolutely yeah yeah god it's a it's a very interesting business because it's so unpredictable um, in many ways. But um, it is obviously such a huge decision to start a business no matter what industry you're in. Um, but I think of something a lot of people, even if you're within this industry, would uh, agree on is that traditional print media is kind of declining and it's very different than it used to be but it's still a very traditional um medium and business so did that ever worry you um it didn't because I think in children's publishing it's slightly bucking that trend I think that children's books are you know experiencing a bit of a heyday in print and I think that's uh, parents on the whole do not want to buy their children their books and I think children love the tactile nature of print and uh, you know parents don't want their children sitting on screens more than they have to so they're more likely to buy books in print for them um, and, and the market shows that actually ebooks for children are not as popular or as um, emerging as everyone was worried that they would be and that print is still doing really well and what has happened is that publishers have had to pull their socks up and have had to produce print books uh, more inventively and they look more beautiful now and the production values are much higher which is fantastic because I think they look so much more gorgeous and they feel that much more gorgeous and and all those things are, are real positive I think so in terms of uh, when I started the business I, I wasn't worried about that at all I mean I have I obviously produce ebooks um, uh, and I, I'm not at the stage yet. I've only been selling for a couple of months, so I haven't been able to see the balance yet between print and uh, ebooks. But um, I'm absolutely convinced that print is here to stay, particularly in children's books as well. I think that's actually a really good point. Is that across, um, I guess, print books, children's books probably are like the one exception where. I think we will always want something physical. Like I yeah. think a lot of people probably can argue that they can see a future where books are consumed entirely in e or audio, but you can't show a a child like picture. It's not the same no. Like, no. as reading them a story at bedtime. Yes. You know exactly. With and also they um. It's that sense of having an object, isn't it, as well, like a toy. Yeah. It's having objects around. Um, I, I don't think we'll ever be in a position where there's just a, one screen and you've got an empty room for children. I, I, you know, I'm obviously talking about um, people who have the capacity to buy books, but, yeah, I think it's really, they're, they're an object as well. They, they're something to feel and touch, and like just like a toy. Um, you know, I've got my children, for example, who've got books all over the place and magazine and beanos and comics. and They're just strewn across the room. And I can't ever imagine that not being the case or a library with books where people are going to go and pick them off the shelf. You, you're not going to pick off one, your own screen and walk around that with all, all day. So, yeah, I think it's I, I'm not worried about that at all. 
at the moment. <laughs> It's almost a little nice bright spot. (laughs) Sorry? Sorry. (laughs) Oh, I was just saying that's a little nice bright spot to think about the future of children's books publishing is that, yeah, I think it's got many, 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 many years left. (laughs) And I think it's it's interesting that um, it's almost like the more digital we become in every other aspect of our lives, the more that parents in particular will seek to protect their children from that by returning to... The traditional so you even see it with like you, you know you go to places and they've got like traditional wooden toys and stuff like that it's like we are seeking to to get a bit of that back for children because people go oh this is this is not how we grew up and you want to return some of that nostalgic childhood feeling and you you can't do that through a screen no exactly I think that's absolutely true and, and you will say that the minimal time that your child's on the screen is what you want, isn't it? And obviously they're going to be gaming and communicating with their friends, but they don't have to read on the screen. So, um, yeah, I do think it's a very positive thing uh, to come out of the digital age. Absolutely. Um, so obviously you went into this starting your own publishing house with an incredible amount of experience in the industry. But was there anything about the process um, that that took you by surprise? Anything you didn't expect at all? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I because I'd started um, David, I'd set up alongside David, um, you know, as his assistant. I had seen the way it worked, but what I hadn't, um, what well, the, the the thing that we were lucky with at David Picking Books was that we have the backdrop of um, and the security of Random House behind us with the sales and distribution and that was something that I really was worried about when I first started looking into uh, my own list because that's the side that I had the least experience of but I was very lucky to meet somebody who um, uh, I was very lucky to get connected with a publisher called Michael O'Mara Books who were just um, setting up their own sales team and selling their own books um, and wanted to sell another list alongside so I ended up um, piggybacking uh, and sorry ended up piggybacking with them so basically they sell my list of books alongside their own to all the big places like Waterstones and all the supermarkets and all the um, indies so I was very lucky in that sense Um, but I, I was I didn't know what to expect but they now take care of all the sales all the distribution um I, I'm on their database, um, so Biblio, which is the, date, the public, big publishing database, um, it's hugely expensive for a little publisher to take on, but fortunately I can go through the Michael O'Mara database, things like that, which were very technical and um, the, the side of publishing that I just didn't have the experience of. Um, so fortunately that's happened. Um, then oh, the, the the benefit I have found, which I, I suppose I should have seen, was the sort of speed at which I can do things and I can make a decision and I can do something immediately. And that has been a real, um, a, a surprising benefit for me. And it and also I can say if we want to publish something very quickly, we can just publish it. Whereas obviously in a bigger company, you've got schedules, you've got other books, you've got lots and lots of people to talk to and to go through that decision process with. So from that point of view, I really, um, I love the speed because publishing is notoriously, as you will know, is notoriously slow. Um, I think <laughs> it probably feels slow to people still with me, but it is nothing like as slow as it can be in the bigger publishers where the wheels just turn that bit more slowly and you're working two years ahead rather than perhaps nine months or a year ahead. So, um, yeah, so probably those two things in particular. Yes, it is a very interesting industry and process. And it's, I mean, I know myself, it's, I knew nothing about the actual publication process until I started working at HarperCollins. But anyway, um, hopefully discussions like this can help people gain some insight. Yeah, I mean, it can be so slow. And I think people do forget how... you know, if you get, if, if a book is delivered, it's, you know, it can be a year and a half before it then gets out into the shops and that's a a huge surprise to people but um, there are so many things to do and sales and you know sales and marketing and publicity all the connections that need to be made um, and they all take time and they still take time for a small publisher as well but it it is that little bit more nimble which is really really fantastic. (laughs) So then 
how did you decide what title would be your very first release? Did you want to make a big statement of any kind? Like, how do you choose what's going to be first? Well, funnily enough, um, the first title is called Gloves Off and it's by Louisa Reed and it's a young adult's book in verse. And um, it, it was my first title for various reasons. But one of the reasons was I had worked with Louisa um, many years before on her second book and she'd been with Puffin and I worked on her book and um, she didn't know that I was thinking about setting up my own list. But a few years later, this is um, September last year, she sent me this book, Gloves Off, um, just to have a look at for my editorial feedback. And I remember I printed it off on the printer and um, I thought, oh, well, I'll work on it later in the week. I'll look at it later in the week. And then I uh, just looked at the first page and before I knew it, I'd sat down and two and a half hours later, I was just blown away by this incredible novel. Uh, it's such a powerful story and it was beautifully written and, you know, tear jerking and also incredibly powerful. And I thought to myself, well, if that's the kind of book that's out there, then I want to, you know, that was the moment that I actually, I think, really made the decision that I was going to set up Guppy Books because I thought those are the kind of books, this is the kind of book I want to publish. But she hadn't at that point said, I'm going to, you know, that I, I'd like you to publish it. She didn't even know that I was thinking about setting up a list. So we talked over the next couple of months and she um, was very enthusiastic about coming on board. And I knew that this book as the first book, it, because it's in verse, it's um, it's about um, uh, body image and weight issues and it's about bullying and it's about picking yourself up and changing, um, just moving forwards with your life. Uh, so it's quite a big sort of powerful subject and I knew that going out as a first title with this slightly unusual powerful book would just be so transformative to the guppy list and, in, and it's been fantastic I mean the response it's had it's had some wonderful reviews uh, it's been nominated for the Carnegie Medal which for the first book is just fantastic um, so I, I knew it would be the one to go out with if, if I were to be publishing it so I'm so happy to have that one as my first guppy title. Yeah, I think that's perfect. That's wonderful. What a wonderful story. And, uh, yeah, it really, and she's just sent her second book in and it's equally as wonderful and powerful. So, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very, I'm so pleased. I mean, I love all the books I'm publishing are wonderful, but to have that slightly unusual, powerful book to start with, I think has been hugely beneficial. Just so that um, people, it gives an idea what, what I'm going to be doing, that I, it's it's not necessarily one of the mill books, it's but something really strong to start with is so important. Absolutely. And I noticed that you've um, also published an Australian author, yes. um, Jacqueline Moriarty. That's right. Yes, the one Jackie Moriarty. Oh, this book is just incredible. And the, the reason that I was able to publish that was because um, it had really very minimal rights. It only had UK rights. Obviously, it's published in Australia and Arthur mm. is published in America. And I think um, the bigger publishers can be slightly reluctant to take on books that are just for the UK market. Um, but I read this book, you know, a while ago and absolutely loved it. And I'm so thrilled that um, Jackie's on, on the guppy list again. Uh, having a book of this quality and someone of her reputation as, as one of the first guppy books is just, you know, more than I could have hoped for. So I'm really grateful to her and I hope, you know, we're doing book justice here and it's doing really well getting wonderful reviews and um, a wonderful reception here. So it was um, yeah, really excited to be publishing Jackie. And the cover is just brilliant over here too. Like I, it just catches my eye every time I walk past it in a bookshop. And then because I knew about Guppy Books, I feel this little like bit of pride when I see it like in a big Waterstones or something. I see it on like the table with all the others, and I'm like, oh, it's it's like it's the Aussie pride. But then also I'm like, oh, it's such a little publisher too Aww. to be there amongst all the others, like as someone who's interested in the publishing industry and who is involved in the bookish community and stuff. I just get such pride when I see it for various reasons. But I think that's so wonderful. It really is. And the cover is just amazing. Amazing. And funnily enough, the cover is by Carl James Mountford, who is actually, he lives in Wales, um, but it was commissioned by the American publisher, um, Arthur Levine, when he um, published it in America. So um, I bought it from the Americans and I've actually got Carl to do the second book, Jackie's book that's coming out next year. He's done the cover for that, but he didn't do it for the Americans, funnily enough. So it's a <laughs> subject, but it's, an, you know, it's such a wonderful look. 
um, and he's just the most phenomenal artist. And yes, as you say, to have, I mean, that's partly Jackie, but it's also partly Carl's cover to get that out onto the tables, as you say, for a little tiny independent publisher, for, you know, second book is just incredible. Really. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that leads me to my next question, which is that, you know, there does seem to be this resurgence of love for indies, indie bookshops. And then there's this resistance in the bookish community, I guess, to the online marketplace, particularly one retailer. And, um, you know, there is this love of books in in um, Britain in particular. Obviously, there's Books in My Bag, which are a wonderful organisation promoting indie bookshops and shopping on the high street. And then in Australia, we have things like Love Your Bookshop Day and um, we have the Love Oz YA committee um, promoting our own stories and obviously that's wonderful to see in terms of bookstores, but how does that then help you as a publishing business? Um, in terms of the support of independent bookshops, um, they are invaluable to us as an independent publisher. Um, if they get, if, if you get a bookshop behind you, an indie, an indie, then they can hand sell huge quantities of books to their customers who will know that when they go in to the shop that they're going to get uh, good advice they're going to get exactly what they want they're going to get people who are knowledgeable and passionate about about reading and about about books um, and it can it can be absolutely transformative and, and in fact today after this podcast I'm going up to Kenilworth in Warwickshire to see the bookshop window that they've done for uh, Jacqueline Moriarty's book um, and just say thank you because there's so Kenilworth books there's particular bookseller called Townsend Rosewell and she has um, she's been passionate about this book since she read it back in February, I think it was. And um, she's put this this incredible window together. She's it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, she's they're selling lots and lots of copies. And this is just one little tiny you know bookshop in the middle of Kenilworth, in the middle of the Midlands. And um, that support, if you can, um, you know, my my hope is to go and meet and um, and go and visit as many independent bookshops as I can. I was thinking of trying to do one a week, but I think that's just, uh, I don't think I would have time to publish anything if I did that. But um, it, they're just so important in terms of um, supporting and, um, and and selling titles for independence. And it's not, I mean, obviously, when I when I meet other independent um, publishers, they all say exactly the same thing is how vital that relationship is and talking to what to booksellers as well about what they want from publishers and I think there isn't that much communication between publishers and booksellers and and there needs to be more because booksellers will say we don't want this or we do want that and actually um a lot of the time publishers are just going ahead sort of slightly blindly and doing what they want and not listening to those people who are on the ground selling the books so they're huge that's another thing too that um, I guess is where being an independent small publisher allows you to excel in that you can have those conversations just like you can shorten the publishing process and be nimble and make quick decisions you can also respond to what people actually tell you and what their feedback is without the overheads of a huge publishing house and the cogs that are all involved in turning that gigantic machine you know yeah that's right that's right exactly so you can be quick to respond and also I think there's a thing about quantity and quality as well because I often hear if so someone like Penguin Random House I think is producing I think it's something like 500 titles a month and oh God. If, oh my you're, God. If, if you're a little independent book bookshop you can't obviously take in 500 titles a month I think I might be exaggerating maybe it's all no, it can't be all this. Anyway, I, can't, I don't know what the quantity is. Some hundreds, though. And of course, one little independent shop has to choose and has to curate their own list as well. Whereas if you have an independent book, uh, book publisher who is only doing eight books a year or maybe one book a month, then that ability to just say yes or no uh, is, is so much clearer and cleaner. And um, the curating has already been done. So I think it's a question of little publishers don't necessarily throw lots of books out there and hope that one or two will stick they put out there what they know will work with their readers so I think that's yeah, really that it, shot, um, as well 
That is a really interesting comparison because there are, you know, so many books out there that, you know, there would be so, so many that, you know, the three of us would absolutely love to read that we just haven't had the chance to or haven't come across or, you know, who knows. But, you know, the the what's new wall or whatever at bookshops when there's so many to choose from, it's really hard to yeah. to know what to put up there. So, yeah, oh, my goodness. Must be a hard decision. Yeah. Although at the same time, I I would still love to work in a bookshop, but I'm sure it's not easy. <laughs> and it's obviously very personal, isn't it? What you what you like and what you love and what you're and you know your exactly. Um, I think that's important. But I I love the fact that you walk into an independent bookshop and it's very different from the that when you walk into a Waterstones or um supermarkets, obviously. But the, the the selection is so different. And you think, gosh, where are all these books in the Waterstones? And of course, the Waterstones are taking you know bigger quantities, a fewer titles. Um, yeah. Mm, absolutely. And um, yeah. I, I love I love going and actually like asking people what they recommend and I don't do it as often anymore because I I ask people on the internet instead <laughs> because right. of because because I'm so connected in the blogging world and stuff that I sort of go into a bookshop with an idea of well I've so, I've seen that you know my friend such and such read this mm-hmm. and so I think I should buy it but I do like to go and ask um, I did it especially when we were traveling around Ireland I would go and ask which yeah. Irish authors I should read um, which new female Irish authors I should read, for example, and get recommendations that way. Yeah. And I, I definitely need to do that more. Um, but again, I've got a list of books like as long <laughs> as long yeah. as my arm that yeah. I want to read. So <laughs> it's time, isn't it? We need more time. Yeah. Wow, it is like literally the eternal dilemma of any reader is knowing that you would literally never ever ever going to be able to read all the books you want to read in the world and sometimes that makes me a bit sad but <laughs> just knowing that there are so many good books out there that you're never going to be able to read all of them and the worst exactly. thing is you, that's not that good and you feel like you've wasted your time with yeah <laughs> Yeah, you just gotta <laughs> just gotta try and focus on the good one, on the one yes. that you can read and enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, I just want to throw in a quick little question. Um, how did you come up with the name Guppy Books? Ah, oh, well, um, yes, that was an. <laughs> it's a ridiculous story, really, but I love pugs, and um, so I was thinking around the word pug, and of course there was nothing that sounds remotely good that sounds puggish. And so I, I switched, I flipped it around to guppy. I just thought, oh, guppy. Yeah. And the more I thought about guppy and the word guppy um, and what it means, um, they're tiny fish. They survive in the Amazon. They're all very diverse. They um, they survive amongst all the bigger sort of more corporate fish, as you would say. Um, and <laughs> colourful. And they um, they also uh, live in the Amazon, which I, I didn't notice until my stepdad pointed that out. But I'm not sure I really wanted that connection. But still, um, it, everything seemed to work uh, in terms of sort of symbolically what guppies mean. And that's what I want the list to be. I want the list to be small and um, diverse and colourful and um, and to survive um, amidst all these, you know, bigger, bigger publishers out there. So um, the more I thought about it, the more perfect I thought it was. And it was available, uh, which is something actually that people don't often think about. But there are so few, it's domain names and things like that, um, which can be really hard to find. But yes, so the more I thought about it, the more perfect it seemed. So that's the reason. It really is. That's gorgeous. There's one, Although, it is. There's one okay. caveat, which is that um, they also can eat their own children, but I tend not to. <laughs> I'm not going to put that. Although, as as a um, as someone who owns a pug back in Australia, I also really like the idea of like puggy books. <laughs> <laughs> I know I couldn't quite do puggy books. I thought that just sounded too. I don't know. <laughs> it is. It's okay. frivolous and ridiculous. But yeah, I love that that's what started you on it. My partner is going to love that. <laughs> <laughs> One day he gets a guppy pug as well. Yeah. <laughs> he he will he will like interrupt my reading, but I know you're reading, but I just gotta show you this video of this pug. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he's gonna love that. 
Um, so we mentioned um, at the start, obviously, you've you've signed um, and worked on books that would be well known to a lot of to a lot of our audience. So things like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, um, The Art of Being Normal, and Before I Die. Um, are there any in particular that have had a really lasting effect on you or something that still sticks out in your mind as something you're so proud to have worked on? Um, yeah, I mean, all those I am proud to have worked on because they were all, um, they were all, they came out at a time where um, they hadn't, something like that hadn't been seen before. And so I'm proud of the fact that they sort of um, set, not set a trend as it were, but they they came out of the blue and they weren't following any trends. And, and all of those books, I mean, um, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas was, <clears throat> I think, the first book I acquired. So I sort of kind of peaked a bit early, but... Um, <laughs> Sales, um, but yeah, it, it it came out of the blue, and I mean, I knew there was something special there. And the same for Before I Die and uh, The Art of Being Normal. They were both, they were all quite different. So, um, all quite, when I talk about them to people, everyone says, "Gosh, they're such kind of tragic." Um, especially Before I Die and The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, sort of these really hard-hitting subjects. Um, but even um, The Art of Being Normal, you know, it was I think the first book certainly the first mainstream book about transgender issues and I'm really proud that that was a book that um you know that I worked on and it was such a wonderful uh, Lisa is such a wonderful writer um, and other books I I you know I've published um, an Australian book actually that I'm really proud to have published is Tender Morsels by Margot Lanigan I don't know if you know that book but Margot yeah. is just the most phenomenal writer and to have um, we, we bought that as a novel, an untitled novel, so we didn't, you know, know what she was writing before we bought it. But it was, um, it was really one of the most stunning books to work on. And um, I passed it on to a, a colleague at Vintage at Random House, and he published it as the, an adult book as well. So we published this simultaneously as a young adult book and an adult book. And um, I'm really proud to have worked on that because that was an astonishing book. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I have many. The, the ones I think that I'm most proud of are those that really sort of broke a mould, I think, um, because of, of the hard hitting subject or because um, it was something that hadn't necessarily been done before. So those are the ones that really, really stay with me. Absolutely. Um, and I know I know that you um, obviously you don't work at David Bickling Books anymore, but I'm pretty sure you worked on Furious Thing with Jenny Downham before you left. Is that right? right? Yes, that's right. It's the last book I edited for David. So I've literally just finished reading it and it is amazing. Oh, it's oh, so yeah. good. <laughs> it's it's so wonderful and I just I'm going to be raving about it for a long time. Um and yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping that everyone goes and picks it up. It's so good. It is. I say again, that's it. It's such a um, momentous sort of subject matter of rage and female rage and and coercion. And yeah, it's such a wonderful. Um, she's such a ter- an incredible storyteller, Jenny. She really is. So yes, she's just yeah. I'm so proud to have worked with her on that. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. Um, as yeah. as someone who has so much experience in the publishing industry, um, what do you think are some of the most challenging aspects of of working in this industry, and how can outsiders support publishing a bit more? Um, I think um, we've kind of touched a bit on on the challenges in terms of I think number of titles out there. I think the number of books mm. published is so many and so therefore the visibility of the books can be really difficult to achieve so um for me i mean i've only just started selling the books that i have edited and produced myself but from the experience of david Fickling books it really is about getting them out there and not letting the books disappear and i think what happens what can happen in the bigger um, publishers is that the marketing and the publicity happens at the beginning and then it sort of drops off and what i really want to make sure I want, I want my I want to build up a backlist. Um, I think it's so important your backlist supports your entire kind of publishing uh, company, and you need to keep putting money and investment and time and energy into supporting those authors all the way through, not just in the first month or two. Um, but that's hard. You know, you it, it's hard because the margins can be so small, and if 
you're not producing that big quantity of books, then obviously the books are more expensive to produce and the margins are much smaller. And sometimes I do wonder where the money in publishing goes or where the, where the money in books goes, because no one seems, I mean, obviously the big publishers are making lots of money, but the margins are so small for everybody and, and for the authors as well. Um, and I think partly that's um, another problem is the devaluing of books as well. I think we we are quite happy to spend you know half the money on of a book on a coffee, for example. Um, but you know when it comes to uh, a you know a, a book that someone's spent so much time writing and that you're going to be keeping forever, um, it, it's not a lot of money to be spending on it. And I think generally readers. Um, I mean, how to support publishers is is a hard one. I would say try not to buy heavily discounted books, but then of course, you know, everybody you know has to has a budget and everyone has to live within their means, and and it can be tempting to go into a bookshop and then go and buy you know, the hardbacks online. Um, but it's not very helpful in terms of the book industry because that those um, authors aren't getting very much as a result. Um, I'm sort of going off on a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> No, that's all right. Um, Yeah, so just, I mean, again, I would say really to help publishers, I would buy from independent booksellers if you can, you know, um, and um, yeah, I I think the the support is just in really in, um, you know, looking at books other than the ones that are the, you know, top 10 in the supermarket or um, but look at searching out those unusual titles and making sure that the um, books that aren't necessarily the big sellers are still being produced, because otherwise we are going to end up with a very sort of narrow um, line of books. And that's a shame for everybody, because that's a shame for the readers who want more than just the mainstream titles, but they want more literary and more interesting things to read. Yeah, I think I've got Yeah, on. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it might have been a tiny little tangent, but it doesn't mean that you're wrong. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, we, ab- absolutely. we absolutely agree. <laughs> yes, yes, I completely agree with everything you just said. So, <laughs> very good answer as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and um, I think for, I mean, it, it's hard, isn't it, because people who are going to listen to our podcast are definitely going to agree with that anyway um but I mean I loved the way that the books in my bag um campaign this year you know things that they pointed out like if you shop in local bookstores you know it's actually going back to the community they're paying tax and you know they're supporting other companies that are paying tax in your country and I think sometimes you do need to make those like seemingly obvious arguments for people just to, to prove just why it's such an important part of the community like they're not you can't just take them for granted that's right and the, and the you know the bemoaning of the loss of the high street that's exactly why as you said mm. it's, it's if, if we aren't buying on the high streets we're not buying from those independents then um then it is going to go because they're not going to be able to survive so. yeah um, and at, at the same time too like I do you know it is and it is hard for people and I, I never want to judge people who um obviously have to if they if they're buying books um heavily discounted I don't want to judge them because everyone has different means and stuff as well and I'd rather someone read a book than than not but I mean if if that book can be heavily discounted and um be bought from maybe your local store rather than online then that's still going back into your local community um so it's just little things like that where I sort of think I, I want people to just do what they can within their means. Um, and even, you know, going back into libraries and stuff like that, I'm very lucky that the local library here, the Derbyshire libraries are very, very good with brand new releases. Like they constantly have new releases. And I took a friend to our library the other day. She's from Liverpool. And she was like, I wish our libraries were this good. They, a lot of theirs are closing, and I know that's an issue that's facing a lot of communities. Mm. Um, but I do feel very lucky to be able to go into that library, support it, and they have a brilliant children's and young adult range. Like, it's just wonderful to see so many brand-new young adult books being added when I think sometimes that that section can be neglected a little bit in yeah. libraries. Yeah. So you know if you're supporting libraries too and you're supporting your local library that's also excellent but um I think and it comes back to to it, it 
that this reflects not just on books but on so many things that we buy now is just doing it intentionally rather than just grabbing a bargain where you can yeah. or just buying because you get this email from this big company <laughs> um, with daily deals and stuff like that. Like being intentional about where we shop and doing what we can within our means because, yeah, not and yeah, not everyone's got the budget to go to an independent bookstore and buy a brand new hardback. Um, but if they're able to go there and, you know, still support it in some way, you know, when, when I was um, – when I was budgeting really hard, you know, I might not be able to buy to afford a book, but if I needed to send a card or something, I could go and buy it from the local indie bookstore and yeah. they had really nice cards. And so I think it's such a little thing, but I like to, I like to hope it helped um, yeah. in some way because I'm still going in there and yeah. Anyway, I've gone off on a tangent now too. <laughs> <laughs> but of course the other way to support um, libraries and the publishing industry and authors is, if there's a book that you want to read and it's not at your library, request mm -hmm. it and then their library can get it. Yeah. 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 Um, and so speaking <laughs> of books we should buy, uh, what should we or keep read, an eye out or for? Borrow. Or read or borrow. <laughs> yeah. Or get our hands on some way but not steal. Um, how, what, what should we be looking out for next year, especially from, from Guppy Books? Um, well, I've got some lovely things coming out next year. I've got a couple of um, I've got a couple of middle grade series that I'm really excited about, which um, I wasn't expecting to do actually so much because I, I'm only publishing eight books a year, and I was thinking I'd be doing many more sort of one-offs. But actually, these two series came in and they're just wonderful. One is called Ghoul Scouts, and it's by a wonderful Texan um, illustrator and writer called Taylor Dolan. And that's a young middle grade two colour book coming out in February and October next year about a girl who is delivered into the wrong summer camp and ends up um, making friends with her zombie and skeleton uh, and ghost friends. And having to it's quite a feminist book, having to defeat the camp leader who comes in called Euphemia Vile, who wants to turn them all into pretty little girls. Um, so um, it's a wonderful series full of kind of invention and kind of wickedness, but with a real warm heart at the centre of it. And then my other series is called Night Sir Louis, and it's by the Brothers MacLeod, who are uh, brothers, in, funnily enough, um, one who animates, Greg who animates, and Miles who writes. And this is a wonderful um, story of a boy who is an, uh, a calm, sensible knight who is a boy in the centre of a very bonkers, crazy world. Really funny, very inventive, uses lots of different sorts of texts like interviews and comic strip, and um, but a wonderful, really funny uh, story uh, of kind of, well, just madcap sort of Monty Python-esque humour. Um, and then I have a, a wonderful YA novel, which is by Beverly Birch, set in Africa, and it's a, a sort of romance and a thriller uh, a girl from the UK going over to Africa meeting a, an African boy whose village and um, the nearby island is under threat and it's also got this historical theme uh, going through as well and it's very layered and lyrical and sort of intense it's a wonderful young adult novel um, and then I have a new Jacqueline Moriarty coming out in September and a new Louisa Reed the second book from her after Gloves Off another young adult book in verse and I'm also publishing the American author Sharon Creech, which is really exciting. Um, and her, mm -hmm. her book, Saving Winslow, is a middle grade, uh, wonderful, sort of um, gentle, very funny book about a boy who saves a baby donkey from, um, from dying and looks after him. And what does he do with the baby donkey as it grows up? Um, so uh, I've got some wonderful things coming up. And I'm so lucky The Sharon Creech, for example, she won the Carnegie Medal about 20 years ago. And she's won the New Brianna Medal. She's a huge um, author. She's so well known. She's just brilliant. Um, but she didn't have a UK publisher at that time, at this time. So um, I'm so lucky to sort of come in and be be her publisher for the next two books. So, mm -hmm. um, so yes. Anyway, that's that's what's coming up next year. I'm sure. Oh, I've wonderful. They, they all sound so wonderful Thanks. and so fun and a little bit quirky, also. Yes. Which I just love the sound of. So <laughs> sounds great. That's the intent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs>
wonderful. Michelle, do you have any other questions? No, that's everything. Thank you so much. Um, Where can people find you and follow you online? Um, I have a website, um, guppybooks.co.uk, and um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter, and we're just putting a Facebook page together as well, so that should be up and running by the new year. Um, But, you know, yes, I'm on social media. We've got quite a lot going on as well, so... Yeah. And if and if people are looking for books for Christmas um, for, you know, readers in their life, then definitely check that out because you've got some wonderful ones on offer. Like you said, Gloves Off, Jacqueline Moriarty. There's so many good choices out there. So, Thanks. yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks for asking. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Better Words. If you enjoyed it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review on iTunes. It really would mean the world to us. And you can also find us at our website, betterwordspodcast.com and on social media at betterwordspod on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Bye. Bye.